This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 2, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. This will be the final installment of the crisis in Yemen. There were several major changes in Yemen in the last few months, and that required me to do a lot more research, which kind of held back the release of the show. You will hear about these, inshallah, during the show towards the end of it. Uh, the current situation in Yemen has kind of forced me to reassess my understanding of the conflict. I go into a little bit more in the outro section, uh, so you can just hold off and wait for that when you're ready, inshallah. And don't forget to sponsor the show at patreon.com slash Islamic History. Your donations, however big or small, are very beneficial, and they all help towards the continued success of this show, alhamdulillah. Show notes will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Yemen2. That's Yemen and the number two. And so with that, let's get into part two of Yemen and the Houthis. The Houthis in Sana'a As the year 2015 was beginning, the Arab Republic of Yemen was falling apart. The Houthis had overrun the capital, Sana'a, taken over the national television station, and controlled most of the military's resources. Yemeni President Abdurrahman Sorahadi was a prisoner in the presidential palace. His authority did not extend beyond the palace grounds, and his troops were surrounded by the Houthis. Saudi Arabia declared the Houthis a terrorist organization, clearing the way for more aggressive action. Saudi Arabia had a long-standing rivalry with Iran, a nation based on Twelver Shiite theology. The Houthis were mostly Zaydi Shiites and rumored to be allied with Iran. These rumors were strengthened when the Houthis concluded an agreement with Iran Air to conduct commercial flights between Yemen and Iran. Saudi Arabia would not tolerate an Iranian puppet on their southern border. In eastern Yemen, the United States continued to pound al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula while the terrorist group targeted both Houthis and President Hadi's forces. Meanwhile, President Hadi was powerless within his palace. By late January 2015, the Houthis had kidnapped his chief of staff and had captured much of the compound. They bullied President Hadi, ordering him to make or change laws as they pleased. The Houthis were in a strange position. They could have overrun the palace, killed President Hadi, and named their leader, Abdul Malik Badreddin al-Houthi, as the new president. Yet the Houthis did not want to actually take over the levers of government. They simply wanted to control those running the government. The Houthis did not want to be seen as a conquering army. They fancied themselves as liberators of the Yemeni people and wanted to be seen as such. However, the reality was that most Yemenis would never willingly accept Houthi rule. And the Houthis knew a coup would never be accepted by the Yemeni people nor the international community. 
Perhaps this explains their odd reaction when President Hadi and his Prime Minister both resigned on January 22, 2015. Citing his inability to govern with the Houthis controlling the capital, Abdurrahman Sorhadi and Yemen's Prime Minister both stepped down from office. The Houthis cried foul, declaring the resignations as unconstitutional and illegal. The Houthis were learning that there was a big difference between conquering a nation and governing one. They were capable fighters, but incompetent rulers. Hadi's resignation sparked unrest throughout Yemen. Massive anti-Houthi rallies erupted all over the country in Sana'a, Aden, and Taiz. In Sana'a, the Houthis responded by attacking and arresting those same protesters they claimed to represent. The Houthis tried to organize a committee to choose a new president, claiming it would represent all parties in Yemen. However, only the Houthis and their supporters participated. Then they tried bullying the Yemeni government like they had bullied President Hadi before. The Houthis threatened to dissolve parliament if they did not choose a new president. Then they threatened to take power themselves. Finally, they created a second presidential council, followed through on their promise to dissolve parliament, and promised to choose a temporary president with full democratic elections in two years. No one took them seriously. The United Nations refused to acknowledge the Houthi presidential council. The United States closed its embassy and ordered its diplomats out of the country. Three days later, Saudi Arabia followed suit, closing its embassy and recalling its citizens. In February 2015, several anti-Houthi Yemeni leaders met in Aden to discuss how to beat the Houthis and bring back some stability. The most important decision to come out of these meetings was to call on the Gulf Cooperation Council to intervene. This was the first step towards foreign military intervention. Not long after this meeting, Abdurrahman Sorhadi disappeared from the presidential palace in Sana'a. Throughout the Houthi crisis, Hadi's supporters were digging a tunnel under the palace to the nearby home of one of his sons. Hadi and a handful of supporters escaped the palace through this tunnel and then drove from his son's house to Aden in the south. They avoided Houthi checkpoints by taking back roads and driving through open desert. When Hadi resurfaced in Aden, he reclaimed his position as president of Yemen and declared the city as Yemen's new capital. Despite his incredible escape, President Hadi was still in trouble. The Houthis had not stopped with Sana'a. They rolled over the local Sunni tribes that resisted them and continued to push south. By March 2015, the Houthis had reached the outskirts of Aden and President Hadi was still powerless to stop them. Within weeks, the Houthis were moving into Aden and had captured several neighborhoods. They looked poised to topple President Hadi's fragile government once again. Until Saudi Arabia intervened. Having failed to broker peace talks between the two sides, Saudi Arabia took a more direct role and offered sanctuary to President Hadi. The beleaguered president accepted their offer and fled to Riyadh. The Gulf Cooperation Council The Gulf Cooperation Council, or GCC, is a political alliance of six nations on the Arabian Peninsula. The members include Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, 
Oman, Bahrain, and Kuwait. Saudi Arabia is arguably the most prominent nation within the GCC, followed by the UAE. The GCC's primary goal is to facilitate stability and development among the member nations as they share a common culture and religion. They cooperate not only politically, but also militarily. The Peninsula Shield Force is the military wing of the GCC. Established in 1984 in the wake of the Iran-Iraq War, the Peninsula Shield Force is comprised of military units from all membered states of the GCC. The GCC has been successful in some respects, but has failed in others. After all, it could not prevent Saddam Hussein from invading Kuwait in 1991. However, by the time the Houthis had conquered Sana'a in Yemen, the GCC was a much more cohesive and stronger force. The members were cooperating in scientific and technological fields, including peaceful uses for nuclear energy. There were plans to build a modern transit system connecting the member nations. There were even rumors the GCC was developing a shared currency similar to the euro. The GCC was no stranger to Yemeni politics. They were fundamental in encouraging former President Ali Abdullah Saleh to step down during the Arab Spring protests four years earlier. With the Houthi invasion of Aden and President Hadi hiding out in Saudi Arabia, it appeared the Houthis would capture another major city. Yemen's foreign minister officially requested military intervention from the Gulf Cooperation Council, and the council responded. On March 26, 2015, Saudi Arabia and its GCC allies began the first airstrikes against Houthi targets. The Saudi Coalition Operation Decisive Storm was the Saudi-led initiative to stop the Houthi advances and return President Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi to power. Besides Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, Kuwait, Morocco, and Jordan all contributed to the military intervention. Sudan, Senegal, Egypt, Malaysia, and Pakistan all confirmed and pledged their support for the GCC alliance and for President Hadi. But Sudan and Egypt only provided a few warplanes to the effort, and no one outside the GCC countries provided ground troops. It appears there was very little support in the Muslim world for a land invasion of Yemen. The United States provided logistics and intelligence to the GCC, but was not directly involved. Iran, China, and Russia all condemned the airstrikes. China and Russia urged all parties to stop fighting and resume peaceful negotiations. Iran's condemnations were the strongest, stating the airstrikes would only lead to more casualties. But since they were negotiating with the U.S. and other nations for a nuclear deal, Iran could not do much more. The United Nations Security Council passed a resolution sanctioning the Houthis and imposing an arms embargo on them. This made it illegal for any nation to deal weapons to them. Russia, a longtime ally of Iran, abstained from this vote, stating the sanctions should have been on all parties and not just the Houthis. 
The operation was coordinated, planned, and executed from the Peninsula Shield Force headquarters in King Khalid Military City in Saudi Arabia. The Saudi coalition stated they were only responding to the pleas of the legitimate government of Yemen. GCC warplanes pounded Houthi targets throughout Yemen. They bombed Houthi military depots in Sana'a. They bombed Houthi encampments in the Asir Mountains of North Yemen. They bombed Houthi strongholds in Saada and Hudaida provinces. Saudi Arabia shelled northern Yemen from deep behind Saudi lines, striking Houthi soldiers mobilizing on the border. And Saudi and American warships established a blockade over every port in Houthi territory. The Houthis called the attacks a declaration of war and promised to send waves of suicide bombers into Saudi Arabia. On April 22, 2015, less than a month after the airstrikes began, Saudi Arabia announced the end of Operation Decisive Storm and the beginning of Operation Renewal of Hope. According to the Saudis, their goal was shifting more towards protecting civilians and fighting terrorism. But in reality, it was a continuation of the same air campaign. The Saudi coalition continued to pound the Houthis who were beginning to reel. The Houthis did not have any response to the airstrikes. They did not have effective anti-aircraft weapons, nor did they have any fighter jets of their own. They called for peace talks, but the Yemeni government wasn't interested. The momentum had changed and President Hadi meant to take full advantage of it. Despite the punishing airstrikes, the Houthis did find ways to fight back. Though they could not do anything about Saudi Arabia's American-made precision bombs, they did launch Scud missiles into Saudi territory and attempted several cross-border raids. Saudi Arabia's air defenses intercepted the rockets and Houthi raids were largely ineffective. Nonetheless, the Houthis continued to hold most of the territory they captured during the previous year. They even acquired new territory as they captured the city of Atak, about 150 miles northeast of Aden. There were attempts at peace talks in May 2015, but they never got off the ground. That same month, Saudi bombers destroyed the home of former President Ali Abdullah Saleh. The next day, Saleh made public what everyone already knew. He formally declared his allegiance with the Houthis. A few days later, Saudi Arabia announced a five-day ceasefire to allow humanitarian aid into Yemen. Despite accusations that the Houthis violated the ceasefire, Saudi Arabia used this opportunity to invite all parties to talk peace in Riyadh. The Houthis refused to accept, stating any peace talks should be held in a neutral country. In response, the United Nations invited all groups to peace talks in Geneva, Switzerland instead. This time, President Hadi refused, stating the Houthis needed to withdraw before talks could begin. Meanwhile, the ceasefire ended and the Saudi coalition resumed airstrikes. By now, the bombing campaign was beginning to take effect and the Houthis were losing ground in Aden. The Fight for Aden After their easy capture of Sana'a back in the fall of 2014, the emboldened Houthis continued to expand their territory. They pushed south towards Aden, capturing various towns and villages along the way. By late March 2015, they had captured the airport in Taiz, Yemen's third largest city and only 80 miles north of Aden. 
They then captured the city of Dali, about 60 miles north of Aden. By the time President Hadi made his spectacular escape from Sana'a, the Houthis were closing in on Aden. Despite making Aden the new capital, President Hadi's power was largely symbolic. He had little more authority in Aden than he had had in Sana'a. For one thing, Aden was the home base for the Southern Movement, a separatist group that wanted to create an independent South Yemen. The Southern Movement agreed to help President Hadi fight the Houthis, but they had very different long-term ambitions. President Hadi's military resources in Aden were also unreliable. Yemen special forces were stationed in Aden and they should have been at Hadi's disposal. However, the special forces commanders were more loyal to the Houthis than they were to him. The special forces leader even refused a presidential order dismissing him from his post. On March 20, 2015, renegade special forces loyal to the Houthis attacked President Hadi's home in Aden and tried to capture the airport. It took several hours for troops loyal to Hadi to fight them off. Nonetheless, by the end of May 2015, the Saudi coalition gave President Hadi his first significant victory. The Houthis had captured the city of Dali soon after the airstrikes began, but were never able to gain a firm hold. The city was split in their support between the Houthis and President Hadi. There were daily street battles between the Houthis and local tribesmen. Saudi airstrikes tipped the balance of power towards President Hadi and the Houthis had to withdraw. There were more attempts at peace talks in June 2015, but squabbling between the different groups hindered any real progress. The Houthis, who never really had full control of the southern seaport, were losing their tenuous foothold. The residents of Aden, however, were living a nightmare. Those who could flee the city did. Many escaped to war-torn, militia-controlled Somalia. This was ironic considering Yemen had long been a refuge for Somalis looking to escape their own civil war. Aden's infrastructure was gone, garbage piled in the streets, and there was little medical aid. Before long, there were reports of malaria and dengue fever spreading in Aden. Within days of the start of Operation Decisive Storm, the Houthis began losing ground in Aden. This allowed Saudi Arabia to airlift weapons and medical supplies to the beleaguered Yemeni forces. Seeing they were losing the ground war, the Houthis resorted to shelling Aden from the surrounding mountains. The Saudi coalition pounded them with airstrikes as street battles raged between the two sides. However, by mid-July 2015, it was evident the Houthis were beaten in Aden. Saudi-trained pro-Hadi commandos known as the Popular Resistance recaptured several parts of the city. By the end of the month, the government declared Aden was Houthi-free. UN aid ships were finally able to dock at the port of Aden, bringing in much-needed food and supplies. Saudi Arabia announced a five-day pause in the fighting to allow humanitarian aid to enter Yemen. The popular resistance in the Saudi coalition continued to rack up winds as the Houthis fell back towards the north. Throughout August 2015, they were able to push the Houthis out of the area surrounding Aden. In early August, the Saudi coalition captured a military base from the Houthis in Lahij, just east of Aden. A few days later, popular resistance fighters and UAE soldiers captured Zanzibar from the Houthis. 
and by mid-August, President Hadi's government announced the recapture of all of Abiyan province to the east. Finally, Aden was completely in government hands, but the city was still not safe as there were several high-profile assassinations. A police major was killed in a northern Aden suburb. Then a criminal investigation officer was killed in another part of the city. The leader of a pro-government tribe was killed in a drive-by shooting in Aden, and in early December 2015, the governor of Aden was killed in a separate attack. Nonetheless, momentum was on the coalition's side. Together with President Hadi's forces, they looked to continue north and make their way towards Sana'a. Airstrike Casualties President Hadi's victories came at a significant human cost. The GCC blockades prevented food and medical supplies from entering the nation. Yemen's infrastructure, which wasn't that great to begin with, began to fall apart, and hundreds of civilians were killed by Saudi airstrikes. These precision airstrikes were not always so precise. The Saudis insisted they tried to avoid as many civilian casualties as possible, but inevitably, the death toll kept rising. An air raid in April 2015 on a dairy factory killed 35 civilians. An attack against a Houthi military base killed 22 Houthis, but also several civilians. An airstrike on a water bottling factory in late August 2015 killed 17 civilians. Airstrikes in Taiz killed another 65 civilians. An attack on a wedding party in September 2015 killed 38 people, including 8 children. While the numbers of casualties from airstrikes was low considering how many bombs Saudi Arabia dropped on Yemen, they were still significant. By November 2015, the Saudis had bombed Yemen so much they were actually running out of bombs. As usual, the United States was there to sell them $1.3 billion worth of munitions to replenish their supply. In March 2016, Saudi airstrikes hit a market in northern Yemen, killing over 40 civilians. The Saudis promised an investigation and also announced a three-month pause to the bombings. Saudi Arabia stated the pause was to allow humanitarian aid into Yemen and give all sides time to talk. But when the peace talks collapsed once again in August 2016, the bombings started right back up, and more civilian casualties followed. In August 2016, Saudi airstrikes killed 10 children at a school in northern Saada province. Later that day, Saudi warplanes attacked the home of the school's principal, killing his wife and four children. While targeting Houthi leaders in Hudaydah and northwest Yemen, Saudi airstrikes struck a residential neighborhood. They killed the Houthis along with 19 civilians. Perhaps the worst attack was an October 2016 airstrike that killed over 100 people attending a funeral in Sun'a. The next day, thousands of Yemenis took to the streets protesting the Saudi coalition airstrikes. Former President Ali Abdullah Saleh used the incident to inflame hatred against Saudi Arabia. He encouraged civilians to arm themselves and head for the Saudi border. The bad press and anger was so high, Saudi Arabia admitted it was a mistake and promised a full investigation. A week later, Saudi Arabia concluded its investigation, stating they had acted on bad intelligence. Each time these attacks killed civilians, the Saudis apologized and offered monetary compensation.
They stressed their intent to avoid as many civilian casualties as possible and reminded everyone that even the Americans, with all their military experience and sophistication, still often killed innocent civilians. Despite the protests, the investigations, and the apologies, the airstrikes and civilian casualties continued. The Siege of Taiz By the fall of 2015, the Saudi coalition's momentum was grinding to a halt. The Houthis had gotten over their shock and awe at the airstrikes and had adapted to the coalition strategy. They even began making some advances of their own. They briefly drove coalition forces from the village of Damt in central Yemen and recaptured some parts of Lahij province. In mid-December 2015, another truce was called as both sides met in Switzerland for peace talks. The truce held for nine days, but in word only. Each side accused the other of violating the ceasefire, and by January 3, 2016, the truce was formally ended. As the year 2016 began, neither side had a clear advantage. And the situation was getting worse for Yemen as hunger, disease, and lawlessness began to spread. Sun'a, though it was under Houthi control, was fairly stable. Despite the airstrikes, the capital was still a functioning city. The Yemeni government was technically in charge, but they were bullied and controlled by the Houthis. Government officials were only a front and had no real power. The police, security, and military were all controlled by the Houthis. Nonetheless, things were relatively peaceful. Likewise, the Houthis maintained some semblance of security in all of the northern provinces they controlled. But Aden, Taiz, and other parts of the country were lawless and chaotic. The country was low on food, workers were not getting paid, and diseases like cholera were starting to spread. As a port city, Aden at least had access to food and medicine, making life somewhat bearable. But things were completely different in Taiz. Taiz, Yemen's third largest city, was the only city standing between the Saudi coalition and Sana'a. During peace times, Taiz was considered Yemen's cultural center. Taiz was the capital of Taiz province and had a population of over half a million. The city was dotted with shopping centers, educational institutions, and various government buildings. Compared to most of Yemen, Taiz had a moderate climate thanks to the large southern mountain range. Taiz was covered with greenery and trees, making it an ideal resort area for wealthy Yemenis. But now, Taiz was closed off from the rest of the world. With the exception of Aden, the Saudi blockade sealed up most of the other ports in Yemen and Houthi checkpoints blocked most of the roads leading to Taiz. One solitary road, winding through the southern hills, was Taiz's only lifeline to the rest of the world. But this road was dangerous and unprotected, preventing most humanitarian groups from accessing Taiz. With no access to the outside world, water, food, and medicine ran scarce in Taiz. Starvation and malnourishment set in. Food prices quadrupled. People died from simple ailments like flu and fever because of lack of medicine. Militarily, the most important feature of Taiz was the N1 highway known locally as the Sun'a Road or the Eastern Gate. 
This road connected the southern region to the northern provinces. If coalition forces gained access to this road, they'd have a straight shot to Sun'a. Both sides knew the importance of this road. Whoever controlled the Sun'a road had a significant advantage. This fact turned Taiz into the bloodiest casualty of the entire Yemen conflict. In the early stages, the coalition's momentum carried them forward. The Houthis had been rocked by the rapid succession of losses and gave up a lot of ground in Taiz. By mid-August 2015, the Saudi coalition controlled over 75% of the city. But the Houthis adapted and changed strategy. They understood controlling Taiz was not that important. All they had to do was control the approaches to the Sun'a Road and prevent the Saudi coalition from reaching the capital. The Houthis withdrew from Taiz, leaving landmines in their wake. They took up positions in the hills north of Taiz overlooking the Sun'a Road. From there, they began shelling coalition forces in Taiz. The coalition responded by bombing those same hills as well as other Houthi encampments. Most of the city was controlled by Al-Islah, the Yemeni branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. Al-Islah hated the Houthis, but Saudi Arabia and Egypt both hated the Muslim Brotherhood. For the time being, they had to form an awkward alliance to fight a common enemy. Taiz became a bloody war zone as both sides hunkered down and traded shots. The city was under siege as the brutal stalemate played out. The year 2016 was difficult for all of Yemen, but it was especially difficult for Taiz. Houthi landmines killed and maimed indiscriminately. Snipers from both sides targeted everyone, even civilians. Entire families were wiped out by airstrikes and shelling. Local tribes and al-Islam militants formed militias and joined in the fight against the Houthis. Farmers, engineers, and merchants left their jobs and headed to the front lines. Criminals, thieves, and drug traffickers took advantage of the situation. They posed as members of the various groups and used them as a cover for their crimes. Hadi's forces were accused of torturing and executing captured Houthis while the Houthis were accused of kidnapping journalists. Houthi artillery hit the National Museum in Taiz, destroying several ancient artifacts. Even the local hospitals weren't safe as civil order broke down. Hospitals were attacked and medical staff were overworked, underpaid, and had few resources. Of all the suffering in Yemen, Taiz had it the worst. ACAP and ISIS by 2016, Sun'a was still under Houthi control, Aden was under government control, and Taiz was under siege. All three of these cities were in central and western Yemen, the most populated half of Yemen. But eastern Yemen, technically part of southern Yemen, was mostly barren desert. But being so far from the other major urban centers, this area was ripe for terrorist activity. ACAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, still made this area their home, but by 2015, a new player had entered the field. Daesh, also known by its English acronym ISIS, began launching attacks against Yemen. Like ACAP, Daesh had no sides and targeted anyone and everyone. 
One of the worst ACAP attacks came on March 20, 2015, when suicide bombers killed 130 Zaidi Muslims and injured another 300 at a mosque in Sana'a during Friday prayers. It was one of the worst terror attacks in Yemen's history. In June 2015, an ISIS car bomb killed 28 people at an army hospital and another 13 at a Zaidi mosque. ACAP's role in the different parts of the country illustrates the confusion of the Yemeni conflict and its shifting alliances and blurred lines. In Aden, ACAP was attacking Hadi's forces. In Taiz, ACAP fought alongside Hadi's forces against the Houthis. In April 2016, Hadi's representatives met with the Houthis in Kuwait for more peace talks. These talks led to a brief ceasefire and the Yemeni government used this time to focus on their fight against ACAP. But once again, no real progress was made in the peace talks with both sides accusing the other of violating the truce. The talks fell through by the end of the month and the fighting resumed. ACAP was now strong enough to capture entire villages and towns in eastern Yemen. They even captured the port city of Mukalla in southeast Yemen. Of course, that was something the United States would not tolerate. In May 2016, U.S. Special Forces assisted government troops in retaking Mukalla, and by the end of the month, the port was back in government hands. But ACAP was not finished with their war against the Yemeni government. The Yemeni military, what was left of it, was being torn apart by ACAP. Most of the government's meager resources were focused on the Houthis and it was becoming very dangerous for Yemeni soldiers. In April 2016, 20 Yemeni soldiers were ambushed by militants, taken to a remote area, and gunned down. In July 2016, ACAP used a car bomb to kill 10 soldiers. Later that month, ACAP ambushed various checkpoints in East Yemen, killing nine soldiers. In August 2016, ACAP suicide attackers killed 50 army recruits in southern Yemen. And in September 2016, another suicide bombing killed 10 soldiers in Abiyan province. As 2016 turned to 2017, most of Yemen was in shambles. All attempts at peace talks had fallen through. 21 months after the beginning of Operation Decisive Storm and the Houthis were still in charge in Sana'a, President Hadi was still in exile in Saudi Arabia and 10,000 Yemenis had died. Qatar and the Saudi Coalition In November 2016, in a surprising upset, Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton to become the 45th President of the United States. Despite Trump's disparaging remarks against Muslims during his campaign, Saudi Arabia welcomed this outcome. Saudi Arabia was against President Obama and Hillary Clinton's efforts to strike a nuclear deal with Iran. A few months after Donald Trump was sworn in, Saudi Arabia hosted a major summit in Riyadh where they presented him with a medal. During that visit, President Trump delivered a speech praising his Saudi hosts. Thank you. I would like to thank King Solomon for his extraordinary words and the magnificent kingdom 
of Saudi Arabia for hosting today's summit. I am honored to be received by such gracious hosts. I have always heard about the splendor of your country and the kindness of your citizens, but words do not do justice to the grandeur of this remarkable place and the incredible hospitality you have shown us from the moment we arrived. You also hosted me in the treasured home of King Abdul Aziz, the founder of the kingdom who united your great people. Working alongside of another beloved leader, American President Franklin Roosevelt, King Abdul Aziz began the enduring partnership between our two countries. Trump's antagonism towards Iran and disapproval of Obama's nuclear deal was well known. The Riyadh summit emboldened Saudi Arabia to further weaken Iran by isolating one of its few Arab allies. Qatar, a member of the Gulf Cooperation Council, had been a thorn in Saudi Arabia's side for decades. Like Yemen, Saudi Arabia once wielded great influence over Qatari politics. But since a 1995 coup, Qatar has tried to move away from Saudi control. Qatar has been able to do so because of two things. One, Qatar has immense wealth from oil revenue. It has the fourth highest per capita GDP in the world. And two, Qatar is friendly with everyone. Unlike most other small nations which tend to align themselves with one powerful global faction or another, Qatar plays no favorites. Where many Muslim and Arab nations refuse to openly deal with Israel, Qatar has maintained strong diplomatic ties. Where most Arab autocrats despise the Muslim Brotherhood, Qatar hosts Yusuf al-Qaradawi, the founder of IslamOnline.net and former advisor to the Muslim Brotherhood. Where most U.S. allies have limited or no ties with Iran, Qatar is a U.S. ally, yet is one of Iran's largest trading partners. Saudi Arabia and other Arab nations also despise the Al Jazeera news agency, which is based in Qatar. These countries have never forgiven Al Jazeera for broadcasting the Arab Spring demonstrations across the globe. A few days after President Trump's speech in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia and various other nations broke off diplomatic relations with Qatar. We cannot have a country like Qatar that is an ally militarily and in the GCC and in the Arab League and that hosts an airbase from which planes take off to fight ISIS and Daesh, I mean ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and at the same time it turns a blind eye to terror financiers who open who operate openly in Qatar. These nations included the UAE, Bahrain, Egypt, the Maldives, Chad, Senegal, Djibouti, Mali, Comoros, and Yemen. All of these nations expelled Qatari citizens, recalled their diplomats, and closed their embassies. Several other countries lowered their diplomatic presence, but did not completely cut off relations. Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and the UAE then implemented a land and sea blockade of Qatar. Qatar is a small peninsular nation on the Arabian Peninsula. 
its only land border is shared with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia and its allies provided a 13-point list of demands for Qatar. 1. Comply with U.S. and international sanctions against Iran. 2. Sever ties to all terrorist organizations, including the Muslim Brotherhood. 3. Shut down Al Jazeera. 4. Shut down all state-funded news outlets. 5. Close the Turkish military base in Qatar. 6. Stop funding individuals and organizations designated as terrorists. 7. Extradite all terrorist figures to Saudi Arabia, the UAE, or Egypt for prosecution. 8. Stop interfering in the affairs of sovereign nations. 9. Cut ties with opposition political parties in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the UAE, and Bahrain. 10. Pay compensation for financial and humanitarian loss caused by Qatar's policies. 11. Fully align with the political, military, and social ideology of the other Gulf nations. 12. Allow monthly audits for one year to ensure compliance with these demands. 13. Agree to all demands within 10 days of the initial announcement. Qatar was removed from the military coalition fighting the Houthis in Yemen. President Hadi's government, based in Saudi Arabia, also cut off relations. However, Unbeknownst to President Hadi, while he was trying to stay in Saudi Arabia's good graces, the United Arab Emirates was working to undermine him. The Breakdown of the Saleh Houthi Alliance Back in 2015, when the Houthis had first captured Sana'a, they tried to organize a committee to choose a new president to replace Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi. Former President Ali Abdullah Saleh was one of the few non-Houthis to support this committee. Everyone, even the Houthis, knew the deal. Ali Abdullah Saleh was up to his old political tricks, hoping to gain power by allying with the winning side. This despite the fact that he had waged war on the Houthis for several years as president back when they were much weaker. His collaboration with the Houthis was crucial. Ali Abdullah Saleh's political party helped to isolate and weaken President Hadi, making it much easier for the Houthis to capture Sana'a. Saleh had always been known as someone who could play factions against each other and strike whatever deals were necessary to remain in power. Though no longer officially in office, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had ruled Yemen for over 30 years, still had tremendous influence in Yemeni society. Many parts of the military and civilian government were still loyal to him, as were several influential tribes. Meanwhile, the United Arab Emirates were getting more involved in Yemeni politics. They had lost confidence with President Hadi and did not believe he could bring peace to Yemen. The UAE believed Ali Abdullah Saleh, now 70 years old, might be their best option. While president of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh had groomed his son Ahmed Saleh to replace him. The UAE had been sheltering Ahmed Saleh for years, waiting for the chance to promote him as Yemen's rightful leader, even while fighting against his father and the Houthis. Saudi Arabia, for its part, continued to proclaim their support of the internationally recognized President Hadi. Nonetheless, a Saudi official did secretly meet with Ahmed Saleh in the UAE to discuss ending the war and forming a new government. The UAE began to quietly reach out to the former president of Yemen, encouraging him to abandon the Houthis and take back control of Yemen. 
and while both sides tried to keep these meetings secret, the Houthis began to grow suspicious. They never forgot that Ali Abdullah Saleh almost destroyed the Houthis when he waged war on them for four years as president. Hossein Badreddin, the Houthi founder and brother of their current leader, Abdul Malik Badreddin, was killed fighting Saleh's troops. These fissures in the Saleh-Houthi alliance grew when Saleh called the Houthis a militia during a televised interview. This angered the Houthis who called Saleh a backstabbing traitor. Before long, Saleh supporters and the Houthis were clashing in the streets of Sana'a. At first, these gunfights were minor, but things quickly escalated. In September 2017, Colonel Khalid al-Radhi, one of Saleh's closest friends and allies, was killed by the Houthis during a shootout. Ali Abdullah Saleh was filmed attending his funeral. From that point forward, it was open warfare as Saleh's supporters and the Houthis battled throughout Sana'a. In early December 2017, Saleh publicly reached out to Saudi Arabia and the GCC coalition. He offered to turn the page in the conflict if Saudi Arabia ended the airstrikes and lifted the blockade. Saudi Arabia responded favorably, stating they were open to dialogue with the former president. But the Houthis were livid. They denounced his statement, calling it a betrayal of their alliance and partnership. Four days after that statement, Ali Abdullah Saleh tried to flee the fighting in Sana'a. His vehicle was stopped at a Houthi checkpoint just outside the city. A firefight broke out and Ali Abdullah Saleh was killed. His death ended any hopes for a quick resolution to the conflict. The Southern Movement The United Arab Emirates was not done yet. Though their plan A, Ali Abdullah Saleh, and their plan B, his son Ahmed Saleh, were unlikely now, they still had a plan C. The UAE had been strengthening their troop presence in South Yemen since the start of the conflict. They had also trained various local militias allied with the Southern Movement. The Southern Movement, a socialist political organization that had always advocated for secession, was growing bolder. They always saw themselves as a separate entity from North Yemen, being more secular and having strong ties to Russia. With the leadership vacuum in Sana'a, the southern movement's claims for independence grew louder. The port city of Aden, Yemen's second largest city, used to be the capital of South Yemen before it merged with the Yemen Arab Republic in 1990 to form the modern Republic of Yemen. But with the fall of Sana'a to the Houthis, Aden was now serving as the new capital for President Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi's government. The southern movement had reluctantly allied with President Hadi to fight against their common enemy, the Houthis. But with President Hadi's government weakened and the coalition's failure to dislodge the Houthis, the southern movement made clear their plan to secede. President Hadi was in an impossible situation. He was waging war against the Houthis in the north, from Aden in the south, while living in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. In January 2018, the Southern Movement's governing body, the Southern Transitional Council, or the STC, demanded that President Hadi fire his entire cabinet for corruption. They gave him a week to do so or they would overthrow his government. 
President Hadi declared both the STC and their demands as illegitimate. He also blasted the UAE, whose militias were supporting the southern movement. A week later, fighting broke out between the UAE-backed southern movement militias and President Hadi's troops. By January 30, 2018, the southern movement announced they had captured the city of Aden and removed Hadi's government. The Current Situation As of February 3, 2018, President Hadi is only president in name. Though he is the internationally recognized leader of Yemen, his government only exists in Riyadh and does not control any major cities in Yemen. Despite the UAE support of the Southern Movement and Saudi support of President Hadi, the GCC continues to claim their coalition is united in their resolve to bring stability back to Yemen. The Houthis still control all of the North and Sana'a. Ta'iz continues to suffer as the GCC coalition appears to have neglected the fighting there to focus more on Sana'a and Aden. This has left local fighters to face the Houthis alone. ACAP and ISIS still control most of the barren lands to the east. The United States continues to use drones and special forces in that area, but a large-scale American invasion of Yemen is unlikely. There appears to be three options for peace in Yemen. Saudi Arabia, its allies, and the rest of the world may choose to accept the Houthis. This would almost certainly lead to the nation splitting in two and allowing the southern movement to have its independence. This would be the quickest path to peace, but it would be a blow against Saudi Arabia's pride and leadership abilities. Saudi Arabia may also choose to invade Yemen from the north. The Houthis would have a hard time fighting both the north and south and would almost certainly collapse. However, this would result in thousands of civilian casualties and Saudi Arabia might find itself stuck in Yemen for years. This option is unlikely as it is very unpopular among Saudi citizens and the Muslim world at large. Finally, the Saudi coalition may continue its current air campaign and hope to eventually break the Houthis. What was supposed to be a three-month operation has turned into a three-year quagmire and the Houthis remain in power throughout much of Yemen. The Saudi coalition is stuck in a stalemate and are no closer to defeating the Houthis now than they were in 2015. Saudi Arabia is looking for a way out of the conflict. They have spent billions of dollars on the war and have lost over 200 soldiers. And as casualties continue to rise and Yemen continues to suffer, Saudi Arabia's popularity and resources are dwindling. There is almost no way for President Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi to return as leader of Yemen. He has few allies and has lost Sana'a to the Houthis and Aden to the southern movement. It may be time for Saudi Arabia to cut its losses and change their stated policy of returning President Hadi to power. This may be the best option for peace in Yemen. All right, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that educational, somewhat entertaining and beneficial, despite the very uh, difficult topic we are, we're discussing with this conflict in Yemen. So um, I started researching this topic uh, back in October 2017, and I had kind of considers myself finished by around November or so. But all of this was before former President Ali Abdullah Saleh was killed, and he was killed in early December. 
Then soon after he was killed, maybe a, a month and a half or so later, the Southern movement captured Aden. That was really just a few weeks ago. So all of that has kind of changed my outlook about this whole thing. I, I agree that President Abdurrahman Surhadi, I agree that he was elected president. He is the legitimate ruler or president of Yemen. But the truth of the matter is right now, he has very little power in Yemen. He still has some uh, a lot of troops who are still loyal to him, but he doesn't control any major cities. You know, I don't like what the Houthis did. I, I acknowledge, acknowledge that the Houthis started this whole thing. But right now, it might be time for the Saudis to try to work something out with the Houthis. It's to me, it's not really about the the Sunni Shia thing. I don't care about Saudi Arabia and Iran's geopolitical games. None of that really matters to me. The most important thing is to bring peace to Yemen and try to preserve as many lives as possible. And I de- I just don't think Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi, President Hadi, is the man to do it. To me, I think it's really time for Saudi Arabia to suck this one up as a loss or whatever, or acknowledge they can't really beat the Houthis, not without going through um, a full invasion of Yemen, which I don't think is going to happen. It might be time for the GCC coalition to, to try to find some way to work with Yemen. I'm sorry, to work with the Houthis. What we don't want, we don't want Yemen to become another Somalia or Afghanistan, where you have 30 years, 30, 20 years of civil war and displaced refugees all over the world and a nation in shambles. You don't want that. So let's hope, inshallah, that they can find some way to bring a very quick resolution to this conflict. Uh, In my um, limited knowledge, I believe that there's still time for everyone to come to a peaceful resolution. It's not like Somalia and Afghanistan, which had been racked by decades of warfare and it completely fell apart and it's not that bad just yet. So I still think there's a chance, hopefully, inshallah, whether it's by dividing the north and south again, whether it's by, I don't think there's much other ways beyond that, but Allah knows best what's going to happen in the future. So for now, um, just want to give you some more updates about this podcast. For now, as I mentioned before in the previous episode, uh, the Islamic History Podcast is going to focus more on recent events. I'm going to kind of walk away from the early caliphate. But these are the three ideas that I currently have in mind. You may choose to voice your support, approval, or disapproval for any of these if you like to. First, my first one is the Moro Rebellion in the Philippines. This is back in the early 20th century, late 19th century, when the United States captured the Philippines from the Spanish Empire. Then there's also the Rohingya Muslims. I know very little about that topic. I know that the Rohingya Muslims are suffering in what is called Burma, but I don't know much about the situation, how I got there, how I got to be like this. I know very little about it. So I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards that because I always like to learn new things. And then there's finally my third candidate is the Soviet-Afghan war. That would be more of an epic thing that will take uh, several episodes to complete a good, that's like a full season in and of itself. Uh, But still, even though it was almost 40 years ago with this war, the Soviet-Afghan war, we're still feeling the effects of it even today. I think it's still very important that we look at that and see the all all of the 
factors and factions and everything surrounding that whole uh, very brutal war. I'm open to other ideas once again, so please let me know on social media. Uh, probably the best place is um, Instagram. I probably uh, can get to that quickest and easiest. I'm going to start researching, inshallah, next week, whatever I, I decide to do. So if you have any ideas, throw it to me. You can find me on social media. Links for all of those things will be available in the show notes page, which will be at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Yemen2. That's the number two. Islamic learning, Islamic learning materials.com slash human two. Um, I'm also going to post a couple of maps on that page so you can try to get an idea of the conflict in Yemen. Uh, I mentioned a lot of cities, a lot of towns, a lot of villages and ports and stuff. And it might be kind of hard to understand how everything relates if you if you're not from Yemen, if you don't know the, the country that well. So also on the show notes page, as I always like to mention, uh, you can also find a link to um, the Patreon page in case you want to sponsor the Islamic History Podcast. Every little bit helps. I appreciate the $1 sponsorships, the $4 sponsorships, even the bigger ones. Uh, whatever you can do, a small sponsorship, sometimes that's better than the bigger ones because the smaller ones are easier for you to maintain. That brings more stability for me. If I didn't have those sponsorships coming through, some of my um, online accounts would have been canceled because I couldn't afford to keep everything up with my with my own out-of-pocket money. We're going to close out now. We're going to close out here. I think I've uh, rambled enough. So inshallah, hopefully we'll start the research on the next topic in a few days. And I'm going to close out this episode with a few audio clips regarding the Yemeni conflict. So with that, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, inshallah, we will we will speak next time on the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Day in, day out, warplanes from a Saudi-led coalition are taking off for Yemen. They're supporting a UN Security Council resolution to restore Yemen's legitimate government, ousted by Iran-backed rebels, the Houthis. But as well as hitting military targets, they've been accused of killing hundreds, possibly thousands, of Yemeni civilians. Meanwhile, funerals have been held in the UAE for four soldiers from the Saudi-led coalition, who were killed in a helicopter accident in the southern Subwa province. And among the injured is a prominent member of the United Arab Emirates royal family. Sheikh Zayed bin Hamdam al-Nayan is a grandson of the founding father and a member of the presidential guard. The UAE government has not publicly announced how many of its troops are fighting in Yemen. But at least 94 Emirati soldiers have died there since the UAE joined the Saudi-led coalition two and a half years ago. In Yemen, the Saudi military is on the ground helping the central government. They are fighting the rebels called the Houthis, who are an Iranian proxy group. And the reverse is happening in Syria. The Iranian military is fighting side by side with militias, some of them extremist groups like Hezbollah, in support of dictator Bashar al-Assad. They are fighting rebel Sunni groups who are Saudi proxies. The more civil wars that broke out in the Middle East, the more Saudi Arabia and Iran became involved. Um, so for Saleh, he's always an opportunist, and uh, he's taken advantage of the opportunity to um, break ties with the Houthis, and now they're fighting against each other. Um, so uh, what we've seen with this, these um, conflict going on in Yemen is uh, there's a lot of sides switching all the time, and so with the right inducement, you can see that um, uh, groups can, can switch sides very easily. Yemen's former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, has been killed in fighting between the country's warring factions. 
Sources in the Houthi militia say their fighters stopped his armored vehicle with an RPG rocket outside the embattled capital Sana. He was then shot dead. It comes just days after he switched sides in Yemen's civil war, abandoning his Iran-allied Houthi allies in favor of a Saudi-led coalition.